Okay, let's turn to Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to just read from verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, If you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Been looking for some considerable time at this letter, this uh, wonderful letter that Paul writes to people he's not yet met, he's hoping to visit them, Uh, the, the saints in Rome, he's writing this letter to prepare the way, get them praying that he'll be able to get there safely, uh, and he's setting out to them what he believes. And through these 11 chapters, he sets out God's majestic plan, God's wonderful mercy, the way that we can be saved, the way that we can know God. And he, he's got a big view He sees how the story began right at the start of of creation. He sees where it's heading to a new creation. He just spells out the the broad sweep of God's plan and where we fit in it. And here in these more recent chapters, he's been dealing with the whole thing about how, what, what about the Jews, God's chosen people who rejected their Messiah? What about them? Can we really believe in the faithfulness of God if he chose them and yet they seem to have been set on one side? And that's what he's dealing with here in chapter 11, saying, well, yes, they are temporally sidelined, but it is only temporary. The idea, God's plan, is that through his mercy to the nations that God's original chosen people will be provoked to jealousy, turn back to him, and so be saved. That's the the broad sweep of God's plan. As he comes to the end of chapter 11, he launches into a song of praise in verses 33 through to 36. As he contemplates all that God has done, he just has to praise God. And then from chapter 12 onwards, chapter 12 begins, Therefore... In the light of all of this, he says, now this is how we should respond. This is how our lives are going to be different if we're believing all of that. But before we get there, just want us to look at the first part of the verses that I read out. Verse 22, he says, Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. It's as if he stops here, he's just been speaking about God's great plan. He says, now, consider therefore. He says, nearly coming to the end of this section, I want you just to stop and think about who God is. Stop and think what this God is like. He's been telling all that God has planned, all that God has done. He's been exploring it. And he says, now, stop and think. Consider, therefore. That's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to pause in the the story, as it were, and just think, now, who is this God? 
What is he like? Because we need to know the real God and not a God that we've created, a God that suits us. Consider, therefore. And he draws attention to two particular attributes of God. God's kindness and God's sternness. God's kindness. Kindness can sound like a a bit bland to be kind, but actually it's a very profound word. It's It's a hard word to translate, really. It speaks about God's goodness, but it speaks about goodness that is shown. Goodness that is expressed. He's used the word before in this letter, back in chapter 2 and verse 4. Speaking to Jews, he says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? God's kindness is God's sheer goodness that has been shown to those who don't deserve it. Some use the word benevolence, but again, that can seem kind of bland. But this is, this is amazing love, amazing kindness. God's sheer goodness. In writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, again, the word is used there. It says, verse 6, God raised us up with Christ seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. All the way that God is towards us in Christ is his kindness. We've been singing, God is good all the time. God is good. And it's not... You know, some people you can say, he's a good person, but he keeps himself to himself. No, God is good, but he doesn't keep himself to himself. He shows his goodness. He bestows his goodness. He is kind. And we're here this morning because of the sheer kindness of God. Sheer generous goodness. Consider, Paul invites us, consider the kindness of God. But of course, he doesn't leave it there. The kindness and sternness of God. Again, an interesting word, a word again that's difficult to accurately translate because the original word is related to the word for sharp. And if we said the sharpness of God, that wouldn't really convey over much. Uh, And so they translate it as sternness. But of course, Paul is going to go on to say, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. He's drawing attention to the sharpness of God. He could cut you off. But it's, it's severity. You know, a, a sharp person can be a bit severe, stern. Consider the sternness of God. God's totally unyielding opposition to sin. God hates sin sin. God searches us. He knows us completely and he sees it and he doesn't turn a blind eye. He's sharp. He sees it. Things that we hide from other people, he spots it and he hates it. Unyielding opposition to sin. Now, Paul says, now consider this is God. Kindness. 
wonderful, generous goodness and sharp, severe sternness. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. It's uncomfortable to think of God as being other than benevolent. It's uncomfortable to think of his sternness. And I guess right from the beginning, people have attempted to kind of give God a makeover and make him acceptable. So to emphasize the kindness of God, the benevolence of God, the goodness of God. People have done it down through the ages. You see, in John's first letter, he's addressing people um, who have been troubled by those who say, sin doesn't matter, ignore sin. And they want to just present a loving God. It happened at the beginning, it happens up to this day. And so, whenever, if ever, people representing the church speak out about some behavior pattern that that, that God disapproves of, you'll get people coming back and say, I thought Christianity was all about forgiveness. How can you say this or that is wrong? That way of behaving is wrong. Sure, it's all about forgiveness. It's all about love. People like to present it like that. That, nothing, Nothing offends God because God is kind. Well, he is, but he's also stern. So people say, well, God is love. He is. And in 1 John... John says, God is love, but prior to saying that, he says, God is light. People don't like that one, so they stress, God is love. Love wins, it'll all be all right in the end, because God is wonderful benevolence, a very comforting view of God. And people who take that view of God, then when they have to consider, well, what about the cross? What was happening there? Well, of course, that is just love, forgiving love. Someone dying who didn't deserve to be punished in that way and saying, Father, forgive them. It's an example to us. That's what the cross is. It's an example of dying love, which of course it is. But that is far from the whole story. Far from the whole story. It's uncomfortable to think of the sternness of God, but these two qualities are inseparable. Consider the kindness and sternness of God. The two are so bound up with each other. This is God. He is good all the time. And he's stern all the time. He doesn't have moods. Have you heard that expression? I hate it with, I hope, a gracious hatred. People who say, God's in a good mood today. God does not have moods. You don't catch him on a good day. It's, it's outrageous to think of God like that. No, he's, he's kind all the time and he's stern all the time. These are two aspects of his character that make him God. Why? Because God is holy. That's the characteristic of God. God is holy. Because he's holy, he's full of love. And because he's holy, he cannot tolerate sin. The holiness of God is really what it's all about. Remember, the famous passage back in the prophets, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when the, the, the start of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, he, he's commissioned by God when he has this amazing revelation of God. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just to say, incidentally, notice, particularly for the children, it says the train of his robe. Because sometimes we sing a song that slightly abbreviates it and says, his train filled the temple. Now, I know some of the children perhaps can think, what is this about? Is the temple like a railway station? His train filled? No, it's the train of his robe, boys and girls. That means the edge, the the, the train is what flows from the, his robe, stretches out, and that's what it's about. Anyway, the train of his robe filled the temple, and it says, Above him were seraphs, these heavenly beings, and with two wings they covered their faces. Heavenly beings can't bear to look at God. God is holy. And they're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That's the characteristic of God. He is holy. Isaiah, seeing all of this, suddenly comes profoundly, painfully aware of what's inside him. Perhaps he hadn't been aware of that previously, but he sees something, the edges of God's holiness, if you like, and he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. The severity of God pointing out sin, instantly aware of what God sees. Maybe unaware of it previously, but in the presence of God, you become aware of what God can see. I'm a man of unclean lips. But then you see the kindness of God. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal on his, in his hand, touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Oh, the kindness of God. Oh, the sheer goodness of God. Your sin is atoned for. But the sternness of God comes first, the awareness of sin. Both of them together. This is our God. And that's why we see the cross. The cross is where the sternness of God is dealing with sin. And the love of God is enabling us to be forgiven. Sin is being punished. It's not just an example of love. It's an example of wrath against sin. The Son of God bearing in himself God's anger against sin he hadn't committed, but we had. God the Son bearing the wrath of God against sin. Anger and mercy meeting. That's the cross. That's what Paul has been setting out. He sets it out in chapter 3 here. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement or as a propitiation, or the footnote says, as one who, would, who takes away His wrath. He, through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice and so on. The severity and the kindness of God. That's the theme of this letter. That's where Paul starts, if you remember, back in chapter 1, where he thrills to this gospel. He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. The goodness of God. And why do we need this gospel? He goes on to say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Consider, therefore, 
kindness and sternness. We can't give God a makeover. We can't select the quality that is most comforting. This is our God. This is who he is. Now, it's vital that we understand that. It is vital for people who are not yet believers to understand that, and it is vital that believers should. For those who are not yet believers, who have not yet committed their life to Christ, it is essential that we understand that God is not just benevolent. The message must begin here. Nothing makes sense otherwise. We need to understand, why do I need to be saved? Why is Jesus called the Savior? Well, it's because of sin. And it's because he, he cannot tolerate sin. He, he's got an unyielding opposition to sin. We need to understand that. That someone who is not a believer needs to understand the sternness of God if the remedy, repentance and faith, is going to make any sense. Now, most of you will know that in recent weeks, I was informed that a, a lump behind my ear, of which I was unaware, actually contains cancerous cells. Well, that was, I was sitting there in the, at the hospital, and they say, sorry to say, it is cancerous. Ouch. The impact of that is colossal. That's stern. You've got cancer. Ah. And then... The good news, it can be dealt with. And so the, the surgeon goes on, the specialist goes on to say how it will be dealt with. And then he said, so what do you want to do? I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, it's your choice. Effectively, he's saying, you could just walk out of here. Now, that was an attractive option. You see, I don't feel there's anything wrong. You know, people keep saying, how are you? Well, I'm fine. There's no symptoms at all. And I could listen to what he's saying and say, I've, I'm, I'm okay. I will walk out of here. Needn't take any notice of what he's saying. I, I don't fancy the remedy. I'm fine. And if I walked out, it would kill me. So, got to hear the bad news. Cancer. Receive the remedy it makes sense. When people hear about salvation, they say, oh, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need this. People don't think Christianity is a kind of emotional crutch for people who can't cope with life. It's not about that. It's about sin. You see, there's something in you that is worse than cancer. The bad news is it's spreading. Already it's spreading. The good news for me was it isn't the cancer, but sin for someone who's not yet a Christian, it's spreading. It's already affecting your behavior. And it's already affecting your mind. And it's skewing the way you think. And it's building up in you a resistance to repenting, a resistance to God. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's affecting your mindset. It's putting a bias there. It's spreading. And if it's not dealt with, it will surely kill you. That's the, the stern news. But the good news is you can be saved totally, absolutely. So you don't fear 
anything, you know you'll be with God forever. But you've got to hear the bad news if you're going to hear the good news. And unless you accept the good news, it's bad news all the way. Just consider, think about it. If there's anyone here this morning who is not yet a Christian, maybe you've listened many times. It's not enough for me to listen to that specialist. I've got to do something about it. It's not enough just to hear. If if you've not yet committed your life to Jesus, hear me. There is something in you that will kill you. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. You will face the sternness of God. And there won't be any benevolence there. The benevolence, the kindness of God is he's brought you here this morning and is speaking with you, saying there's a remedy, you can be saved. Got to do something about it. A specialist says to me, what do you want to do? I've got to do something about it. You've got to do something about it. But Paul here is actually writing to believers. Now that seems a bit odd. He's saying to believers, consider the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Ouch. Is this Paul on a bad day? Does he really mean this? No, he's saying, look at it, look at it. He's told the story of Israel, God's chosen people. They were safe, they were secure. And yet, cut off. They were chosen, Israel were chosen, and they were kind of complacent in that, they were okay. The other nations, well, yes, uh, they're in a bad way, but Israel, God's chosen people, they're all right. But no, they weren't. And Paul was saying, look at it, consider it, draw the right conclusions, consider therefore, in the light of all of that, you see two things. God is kind, God is so good, and he's stern. There is a great danger, isn't there, for us as Christians that we can just be kind of complacent, have a kind of casual reliance on God's unfailing kindness. He's good, and he's good all the time. I'm so glad we had that song. Mark didn't know what I was going to preach on, um, but so glad we had that song. I thought, yes, I want us to get that reinforced. God is good, and he's good all the time. And so we can say, well then, nothing matters. We're okay. And so we can choose to ignore his sternness because surely our little bit of doctrine will tell us he's kind to us and he's stern to those who are not yet believers. We are okay, he's kind to us. They need to repent. That's nice, but that isn't what Paul says. Talking to believers, he says, consider the kindness and sternness of God. Kindness to you provided that. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't think there are any conditions in this. 
Well, hasn't Paul said, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Hasn't he spelt out the whole thing of being justified? Well, then God's always going to be kind to us. Sternness, no, that's a different category, doesn't apply to us, we might think. And so we ignore his sternness and we drift through life casually thinking it's all okay, which is exactly how Israel were. And that's the point he's making. They were confident. They were secure. The scripture said to them, they're chosen by God, holy, his special people. Well, of course they're safe. And as their history unfolded, not only are they called by God, they've now got the temple, the place where you meet with God. It's theirs. That could never fall. Of course it did. And so they became carefree on basic matters of simply believing God's word. It says they were broken off because of unbelief. Yeah, it didn't matter because they're God's chosen people. They're safe. They're, safe. they're, they're secure. They, they were casual about believing God. They were casual about holiness. They were casual about worshipping God sincerely. We sang again, coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. Sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. Hey, that could be said of Israel. Read the prophet Amos. See what Amos has to say about the thing they've made worship. God says, I hate the sound of your songs. I hate the sound of your instruments. He, he doesn't want them. Oh, they're proud of it. Hey, the band is good. <laughs> they've got some great songs, and they really know how to sing them. Their worship is so impressive to them, not to God. Because their hearts are wrong. And God says, I hate it. Now, Israel, secure, confident, critical of people outside, but careless. And Paul says, consider. <laughs> Just look. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. You know, there's this phrase that has gone around over the years, once saved, always saved. Such a dangerous phrase. It's a kind of selective slice of truth. <laughs> it, it's true very selectively. It's a thin slice, a selective slice of truth. And people who just trot that phrase out are the people who are likely to be careless and why bother? You know, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why bother? Doesn't matter how I behave. That is so not true. Why do you think it is that when Paul comes to the end of chapter 11, where he's been setting out the gospel, he begins chapter 12 and runs through the subsequent chapters, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Hey, Paul, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. 
And through the next chapters, he is spelling out what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why does he say all of that? If once saved, always saved? No, if you're really saved, you know God. That's the whole point of salvation. We know God and consider God wonderfully kind and stern, sharp, see sin. This is our God. And having been reconciled with him through the blood of Jesus, oh, the benevolence of God, oh, the kindness of God, that I should be saved, I want to please him now. I want to walk with him. How can I say I love him and do things he hates? How can I tolerate that if I really love him? And if I can tolerate that, do I know him? Do I really know him? Where's the evidence that I know him? Well, the evidence of knowing God is a changed life. There was no evidence of knowing God in Israel. They were cast, when, when God comes among them, God made flesh, they kill him. That's how much they knew God. They thought they were all right, but they weren't. And Paul is saying, just draw the conclusions. Consider, consider therefore, Kindness, wonderful grace, and sternness. This is God. Two inseparable qualities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again we find lessons drawn from Israel's history. When uh, in chapter 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. And he's speaking about how the Hebrews came out of Egypt and they went through the Red Sea. It's like a kind of baptism, he says. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Hey, they were saved. Well, no, they weren't. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't, do not be idolaters. We should not commit sexual immorality. We should not test the Lord as some of those did. And do not grumble as some of those did. Hey, Paul, aren't we just saved by grace? Yes. And we've got to show it. Got to prove it. If we're genuinely saved, it will affect the way we live. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages have come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And then the goodness of God. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The goodness of God. Because God is good. God is holy. And we need to recognize it. Holiness is a major theme of the New Testament. That shouldn't really take us by surprise because God is holy. 
And the, the characteristic of the New Testament, as opposed to the Old Testament, is in the New Testament, we are in the age of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. God puts His Holy Spirit in us so that we can be holy. That's the point of the whole thing. Jesus died on the cross to take away our guilt, wonderful mercy, and to break the power of sin so that we're no longer slaves of sin. Romans 6, shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase? No. Sin's power is broken. We can be holy. That's the point of it. And so the New Testament, all the way through, is stressing the need for a changed life. But if we're casual, if we just say once saved, always saved, hey, it doesn't matter. So you get the crude jokes. Well, in all honesty, dirty jokes that you hear among Christians. You think, what? Do we not fear God? The coarse language. Isn't God holy? Put his Holy Spirit in us. The criticizing. The dishonesty. Doesn't matter. Hey, once yes, we're in grace. No, we're in God. We're in Christ. And he hates sin. And oh, he has shown such love to us. Don't we love him enough to put those things away? He's even put power in us so that we can. It's what it's about. It's grace so that we can be holy, not grace so that holiness doesn't matter. Got to get hold of that. It's not grace so holiness doesn't matter. It's grace so that we can be holy. The letter to Titus, chapter 2. Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace does not say ungodliness no longer matters. It's very different, very different. When God comes close, holiness really does begin to matter. Story of Isaiah. God comes close. He sees God and suddenly holiness matters. Woe to me, I'm ruined, he says. And that's the story of down through history when God comes close, what we would call revival. When God's spirit begins to move, suddenly holiness matters. You see that in the early chapters of the book of Acts. The pouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, people getting healed, wonderful things happening, and then in the midst of it you get Acts chapter 5, a man and his wife, everyone is selling stuff and bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira do the same with a bit of a, bit of a, a skew to the whole thing. They sell some property, claim to be bringing all the proceeds and giving it to the apostles, but actually they've kept some back. Now, they were free to keep something back. It's the fact they're saying, no, here, here, here's it all. And both of them died on the spot. And it says, great fear 
sees the whole church. God's come close. Things that ordinarily, perhaps, they'd get away with. Hey, but God's close. Sin matters. Why do I say this? Well, I believe we're heading into days when God's going to come close. And we need to be aware who God is. We need to be aware of his character, sheer goodness, and sternness. When God comes close, sin does tend to get highlighted. Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. God says, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Wonderful. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Terrific. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears, for he will be like refiner's fire? Ah, the goodness, severity of God. When God comes, things get shown up. Always does. I don't know if you read any stories of revival, but a revival in the 20th century in this country, there weren't many revivals in the 20th century in this country, but one in 1948 or thereabouts in the Hebrides. You read the story, there are amazing things happening at that time. But it all kind of kicked off when a group of guys are praying and one of them, innocently I guess, just read out Psalm 24 and then God came. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord. And as he read those words, conviction of sin came on that group of guys who had met together to pray. God began to work and revival came. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands. And they said, realized, we have not got clean hands. And God comes. His sharpness shows up our sin. Now Paul is saying, learn the lesson. Consider, therefore. Consider this is God. He's not just a benevolent figure who tolerates anything and says, hey, I love you anyway. He does love us anyway. My conviction is, it's just what I believe, when Ananias and Sapphira told those lies and they were killed on the spot, I believe they went to heaven. I believe they were saved. I wonder what kind of entrance they had. (laughs) Come home early. Taken away so they didn't do any more harm. What shame. Saved through fire. What kind of entrance do we want? What do we believe in God for? Consider the kindness and sternness of God. Sin is a cancer. And it will kill unless we deal with it. And it's got to be dealt with. It's not just Paul saying this, the other apostles say it. Peter says about sinful desires that war against your soul. He's, Peter speaks about precious promises 
God has given us so we can escape the corruption that's in the world. Yeah, we need to deal with it. Now, this is not a call to kind of introspection, to kind of turn inwards on ourselves, although it might seem like that. Paul is saying, consider the kindness and sternness of God. He's saying, consider God. Don't turn in on yourself. Look at him. See what he's like. This is our God. These two qualities make up holiness, and God is holy. Consider him. Know him as he is. Have relationship with him as he is. Not a God of your own construction, not an idol, but God as he is. This is the God who has saved us. This is the God who has brought us into relationship with himself forever. And cause us to walk with him, to acknowledge who he is, to deal with the things he hates because we love him. God's moving amongst us. Have you noticed nowadays when you're parting from someone, once upon a time they used to say goodbye. Now people say, take care. Often it seems to me a bit like a threat. You know, I think, what do they know is going to happen? But actually, take care. Good way to end the message, really. Take care. God is moving amongst us. And God is going to move amongst us in greater power than we've ever seen before. We're hearing that again and again. God coming. Take care. He's God. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sharp severity of God. Sternness to those who fell, kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Take care. Let's pray.